Amen. You can have a seat. And kids, you are dismissed. You can head on out. Pastor Jeremiah right here in the center. It's going to lead you away to bliss and joy as you go. Uh, my name is Dave Teixeira. No relation to other Teixeiras. No relation to other Teixeiras in the news this week. We won't even go there, but we should pray for that kid. Um, Today we're launching a new series. Uh, It has nothing to do with national security. It has everything to do with what Jesus cares about. And that wasn't me saying Jesus doesn't care about national security. Don't email me. That was off the cuff. Um, But as we get into it today, I want to talk this morning about why this series and why now. This morning, the whole goal is really just to get us ready to digest what I think is going to be a very meaningful and significant series um, for our church. Because most of you know uh, that the last few years have been tough. Things have been tough in the world. They've been tough in the U.S. They've been tough in Portland. They've been tough in the church, especially the American church. And they've even been tough in our church. COVID and decisions about how to respond as a body to the pandemic were divisive in our culture, but also in our church family. Some of you know this, some of you don't. People left our church, both because they thought we were too cautious and too reckless. Not at the same time. Those aren't the same people. Uh, Different people, different reasons. There's been a a racial awakening in our culture, and people are talking about it, the past of it, the present of it, and what it looks like to move forward. And again, this has been dividing. Have you noticed? There's been political tension and debate and polarization like we've never seen before. And just as it seems to settle down, here comes an election year. John Mark Comer says, and I agree with him, that there has been a radical secularization of both the right and the left in our world. This this means that people in our society, in general, no matter what your political persuasion, are thinking less biblically and more materially and selfishly and individually and secularly than maybe ever before in the history of our nation. And and I'd like to say that the church has, has risen above all of this and that our unity in and around the person and work of Jesus has been a shining example to the culture. But I can't. And and not that everyone has been sucked into the polarizing vortex of our current cultural climate. No, not everyone, but enough have to cause us pause. Enough have in the church, the larger church, for us to stop and say, wait a minute, What does Jesus really think about these issues? And are the issues we tend to focus on even the ones he cares most about? Are our priorities lined up with Jesus' priorities? Do we think like Jesus thinks? Do we engage like Jesus engages? Because we are a community of people following Jesus together. That's a very simple definition of the local church. We gather here as part of our goal 
to grow in being like Jesus and to help others follow him as we do. That is actually the mission statement of our church family, becoming like Jesus and making him known. That's why we're here, to do that, to be that kind of people. And by the way, all you grammar people, is, there's no period at the end of that, right? It's, just a, it's not a sentence, it's just a phrase, no period. I bring this up because there's a period in the lobby. And it bugs me. It, does it bug you? Because it bugs me a little bit. I'm, we're going to take care of that. And this is like my declaration to you. The period's going to go. Maybe it'll just disappear. Or maybe we can put like dot, dot, dot. Like there's more to come. Like th- that'll lead. I don't know. But just, it's not a sentence. Okay. I digress. I digress. Sometimes I like to work my stuff out up here. If you're new with us, this happens from time to time. Um, here's my point. Becoming like Jesus and making him known means that more and more we are people with his priorities. People that care about what he cares about. What does Jesus really care about in this world and what does he want us to care about? What does he want us focusing on and spending time on? Who are we called to be in this culture to best represent him and bring the light and flourishing of the kingdom of God to a world that needs it? That's our series. 10 weeks with the goal that our cares would be more like Jesus cares. There's another grammar fix for us, by the way. There should be a little apostrophe after Jesus, right? It's not that Jesus cares. We all know he cares. The series is about Jesus's cares. How do you say that? (laughs) What does he care about? That's again, okay, more grammar today. That's, That's it for the grammar. I'm not a grammar guy. If you saw my sermon manuscript, you'd be like, oh my goodness, it's bad. But it does matter here. So one of the things I notice about Jesus is that there were things he cared about. If you read the Bible, specifically the Gospels, you will see this. There were things he took a stand on when he was living as a person here on earth. And then there were some things that he didn't. There were some things that were a high priority to Jesus and some things that were a low priority. Some things that were really important to him and other things that were less important to him. I think about the woman caught in adultery. This is from John chapter 8. The teachers of the law, it says, and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? And then Jesus doesn't respond for a little bit. He pauses He starts to write something on the ground. We don't really know what it is. But then eventually he responds and he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then we're told that they slowly but surely all just walk away. Now, does this passage mean that Jesus does not care about adultery? That Jesus is just like, yeah, no problem. Cheat on your spouse, sleep around. Who cares? I don't care. Of course, that's not true. But this passage does remind us that Jesus cares about adultery because he cares about adulterers. He cares about people who are damaged and struggling and who have, been, and who have even made bad decisions in the midst of their hurt and pain. He cares about those people. They all walk away and then Jesus says to this woman, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. 
then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, this passage seems to indicate that Jesus cares more about healing than condemnation. That he hates hypocrisy and does not care for people who want to use others, the weak and the vulnerable in particular, as pawns in the midst of political power maneuvers. You see, how issues are addressed, by who and when and where and with what tone and motive are all things Jesus cares about sometimes as much or even more than the issues at hand. But here's my point, and don't miss it. There are some things Jesus cares about more than other things. Maybe the best example is the moment when Jesus was asked about taxes. Now, you need to know that taxes were a huge issue in the first century Israel. Huge. It was something people were discussing and debating and posting about on social media all the time. They didn't have social media, just so you know back then, but they did talk about stuff, actually face-to-face conversations. And they talked a lot about taxes, taxes. The Romans were taxing the snot out of the Jewish people. As Luis Palau used to say, that's biblical language. Literally taxing them into poverty. And people were over it. They were fed up. They were up in arms. This is why people in the Bible... They hate tax collectors. Have you read the Bible? Do you know how much they hate them? They, they list them out with like prostitutes and sinners. Every culture, by the way, friends, has a list of people they consider to be the worst of the worst. <laughs> in any culture in the history of the world, if you dig in, you'll find out that there's a short list of the really, really, really bad people. We have those people in our culture too. You could probably make the list in your minds right now. And in Jesus' world, tax collectors were top of that list because they were traitors. The Romans had this system where they would hire local people to tax their own people. They would hire someone from the town to tax the town because those people knew the people of the town, knew what they made, knew what they did, knew where they were hiding their money. And then those people would tax their own people, keep a share of that money themselves and get rich off of the backs of their own people while serving the enemy. Jesus' people hated taxes. And so when the leaders come to Jesus and say, should we pay this tax to Caesar? They're they're expecting him as a man of the people, as a rabbi of the people to say, no way, No way we should allow this corruption and tyranny to continue. No way that lines up with the kingdom of God. We must make a stand for freedom and for truth. But is this what Jesus says? No. He says, and this is from Matthew 22, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. There's a lot to be said about this passage and many will read it on a very surface level and say, Jesus is for taxes. He is pro-tax. If you're a Christian, you should pay your taxes. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. I paid mine yesterday. So there it is. Um, I literally did yesterday. I did yesterday. Wait till the last minute. 
But here's what I believe Jesus is really saying when we, when we dig in and go a layer beneath. I think he's saying, I don't care about this issue of taxes all that much. You guys are all worked up about it, but it's not that high of a priority for me. I think the core message that Jesus offers here is, is you've gotten so focused on these Romans and these taxes that you're missing what's most important. I think Jesus is saying your priorities are off. In fact, what Jesus really says here is, do you know what I care about more than what happens with these coins that have Caesar's image on them? Your souls that have God's image on them. That's what I care about more. Whose image is this? Caesar's will then give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Care about what I care about. Care about most what I care about most. You see, sometimes in our zeal, we make little issues big issues or big issues little issues. Sometimes we get sidetracked by dis distracting debates that might be interesting conversations, but were never meant to be places of major concern. And we do this while missing the places of larger concern and of importance to God. Paul talks about this very thing. He talks about it to the church in Rome, in Romans 14, how there's all these disputable matters, all these debates happening in the church. And some of them God even has an opinion on. He even has a stance on. Some of them are even like, Right and wrong, and yet, and yet, Paul says, let's make sure we're passionate about what Jesus is passionate about. You see, we often get off in our passions, misdirected in our passions, for, for a number of reasons. I'll give you two. One, because sometimes we equate spiritual maturity with theological opinions. We think, and this happens in the church all the time, especially in a Bible church. We think the more knowledge I have about theological issues and the stronger and more biblically supported my opinions can be, then the more mature in Christ I am. I remember going to seminary. I was 25 years old. We were living in Minneapolis, St. Paul, a wretched place to live weather-wise, um, but a really beautiful city. And, and, and my number one thought, I'll be honest, my number one thought as a 25-year-old going to seminary was that Bethel Seminary was going to teach me what to believe and how to defend all the things I thought about every hard issue of faith. That I was going to graduate and I was going to be bulletproof. I was going to know it all about sexuality and spiritual gifts and baptism and men and women and predestination and end times theology and the role and function of the Holy Spirit and young earth versus old earth. And I would have all my arguments equipped and I would go out there and I would just mow people down. <laughs> and yes, I did develop beliefs and conviction around some of those issues in seminary. But for many, many of those issues actually got harder. Less black and white and more gray, more nuanced, more biblically informed. Now hear me clearly, Cedar Mill Bible Church. Understanding scripture is extremely important. And while the Bible is not always simple, on many important things, it is clear. I'll say that again. And while the Bible is not always simple, on many important things, it is 
very clear. In fact, in this series, um, we are learning to think more biblically about matters. That's the goal, that we would, we would see the world more and more through the lens of Jesus' eyes, the Jesus we get to know and learn about in the scriptures. One of our weeks is even how Jesus cares about truth and conviction in a time of relativity and compromise. So don't hear me saying truth doesn't matter. Truth matters. Jesus cares about having conviction, but the right convictions. Biblical maturity goes so much farther and well beyond just having strong opinions. Here's a quote that I love. I think it's Tim Keller, but I couldn't actually pin it down to him. It's, it's somebody smarter than me. Here we go. I love this. You'll like this. Spiritual maturity is not just developing strong convictions. It is learning to show restraint in the weight you give those convictions. Yeah. A sermon over right there, right? That is it. You see, according to Jesus, being like him is more actually about who you are than what you know or the positions you hold. I mean, have you ever noticed when you read the Gospels that Jesus doesn't show up on the scene and say, okay, I'm here with God's blessing and the kingdom, and here are the big issues of the day and how you should think about them, how you should vote on them, how you should express your opinions on them. Let's start running through the list. Is that what Jesus does at all? I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' first big manifesto on the kingdom of God. And it doesn't begin with, blessed are those who believe in border control and gun control and environmental protection and abortion restrictions and sexual integrity. Is that what he says? And it's not that Jesus doesn't have anything to say about those issues. I think he does. And we may talk about some of those things in this series, so buckle up. But it's not where Jesus starts. Instead, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, people who have power but know how to contain it and control it and restrain it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Friends, Jesus is talking here about deep internal transformation of character, not just a shift of opinion. Even his first followers understood this. Understood that spiritual maturity was not just about thinking something new. Colossians is talking about what it means to follow Jesus and it says, hey, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's about who you are becoming. Galatians says the fruit of God's spirit at work in your life. In other words, the evidence that you are maturing spiritually is that you're more loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. None of that has anything to do about your opinion on the big issues. Friends, Jesus cares first about who you are because he knows that who you are will not just shape what you believe, but how you believe it. 
Here's the second thing. Here's the second reason our cares and priorities often get off track. Our ideas about what Jesus cares about are sometimes more culture-driven than scripture-driven. Like we, we spend a lot more time on the internet than we do in the Bible. Pastor Rick McKinley from Imago Day across town is famous for saying this, and I, I, this, is, this is so good, and it's so true, and it should wake us up. Portland makes disciples. How, that's, that is true. Portland makes disciples. Do you know that? Do you know that the city that we live in is making disciples? Do you know that Intel makes disciples? Do you know that the Beaverton School District is making disciples? Do you know that Nike makes disciples? In other words, this world we live in, the culture where we reside is not passive. It is constantly working and messaging to shape your mind and emotions and life. Don't be ignorant to this. And it's not all bad. Not everything that the culture says is untrue. Sometimes the culture has truth. But don't be ignorant to the fact that it's making disciples. It's not just our culture and our city. Every society in the history of the world has been a, a value-shaping society. This is why Jesus is so unbelievably special. Because on one hand, he seemed to care about the world around him so, so much. He just cared about the people. And yet, he operated completely independent of the world's values. He cared about the world, but he operated independently of its values. He was relevant and yet removed. He connected to the deep longings and needs of the people around him, and yet he did not prioritize life in the same way everyone else around him did. And he wants the same for us. You want to become like Jesus? This is one of the ways we are to do it. Listen to what he prays for his followers in John chapter 17. This is Jesus on his way to the cross. Like on his way to die for the sins of the world, he's praying for his followers, who they will be and how they will operate in this world in his absence. And he says, my prayer is not that you, that's you, you, all of us. It's not that, oh, that, sorry, that you is God. Sorry, that was my bad. My prayer is not that you, God, take them out of the world, but that you protect them, that's us, from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Friends, this, this passage is, is famous for the phrase that has come out of it that most of you have heard if you've been around church for any time at all, that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. That we would care deeply about people and the needs of our culture, but not respond in the same way that everyone else does. And that doesn't just mean have a different opinion. That by the truth of the word of God, we would have different ways of thinking and feeling and responding to the issues that we face, that we, like Jesus, would be relevant and yet removed. And here's where the rub comes in. Because some of us are removed and not relevant, and others of us are relevant and not removed. Sometimes 
For, for some of us, or, or for all of us maybe, some of the time, we are so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We're so concerned about not being of the world that we aren't even in the world. We aren't engaged with people and society the way Jesus calls us to be and longs for us to be. And I can just hear him saying, get in there, church. I've got you down here for a while for a reason. Or, or we are very, 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 very relevant, but we are not removed We are engaged with people and culture and society, but in ways that are really no different than the larger culture around us at all. And again, this is why we are doing this series. We're doing this series because we need help. Because we need to change. Because we need to shift. Because we need to transform. And by we, I mean we. This is where our series must begin, right here, with that admittance, with that confession, with that posture, with all of us just being willing to humbly and honestly say, our sense of what Jesus cares about might be off and needs adjusting. You see, this series is not about, like, I hope Pastor Dave tells me everything I want to hear, and I hope everything he says lines up with with what I have heard and read on the internet and have come to believe firmly. No, the whole goal, I mean, like, I hope that you're sitting here hoping that at the end of this series you'll be different than at the beginning. I hope I am. And I'm preaching. Like, I'm preaching with fear and trembling on this one. You see, our thinking and our feelings and our ideas and opinions might not be fully in line with Scripture or the heart of Jesus, Are we humble enough? Are we honest enough to confess that? And if that's true of you today, if you're willing to say, that's me, I got some opinions that are probably out of line. I got some thoughts. I got some some values, some habits, some practices that are probably not in line with what Jesus, I care about some things a lot that Jesus cares about a little, and I care about some things a little that Jesus probably cares about a lot. Are you open to that? Are you saying that's you today? If that is you, welcome to being a disciple of Jesus. Because this happens to his disciples all the time. He corrects them and challenges them and changes them. That's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus' disciples in the scriptures were certain that Jesus didn't want some Canaanite woman hanging around. And then Jesus says, she has great faith. They were positive that he didn't have time for kids on his busy schedule. And then he says, let the children come to me. They thought the kingdom of God was ultimately about position and power in this world. And Jesus says, wait a minute, guys. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Over and over and over and over again, he's saying, let me adjust your priorities, disciples. Let me shift you. Let me pull you. Let me challenge you. Let me change you. Let me help you become more like me. This constant laying down of our ideas and opinions and values and cares so that we can have more of Jesus' ideas and opinions and values and cares is what following Jesus is all about. That's why we're here. We come saying, God, change me. Mold me, shape me, transform me. There's a fancy Bible word. It's called sanctification. Sanctify me, Lord. And that's why we're starting this series at the table. 
We're starting this series sharing the Lord's Supper together as we launch in. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we, we do this, we have this meal, we share this meal together in remembrance of Jesus. We remember his amazing grace that he took the punishment of our sin on the cross. We remember his ultimate power that he walked out of the grave and defeated death and all the forces of evil on our behalf. But as we remember his devotion to us in this meal, we also renew our devotion to him. As we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we are essentially saying Jesus Come into me and change me. Shape me, transform me. Communion, friends, is a confession that we need to be changed and it's an invitation for Jesus to come and do that changing in us from the inside out. That's what we're going to do here together in just a few minutes. We're going to share the elements of communion. But before you come to the table, or maybe even as you come to the table, Take a minute and just confess any sin in your life. Take a minute and just acknowledge to God that you're not perfect. That there's some things in you that are hurt and messed up and broken. That there's, that there's pain, that there's disobedience, that there's confusion in, in parts of your life. And just say, God, I, I want you and I need you to do this fixing in me that I have not been able to do myself. And don't just confess your sins to confess them. Like, it's not just some religious ritual. Oh God, I checked this box, I confessed my sins, and now I can have the stuff. No, it's not what we're doing here. It's a chance to confess your sins in a way that says, I need your help, Jesus, and I invite you to do your work in me. Do your transforming work in my life. And not only that, not only that, friends, I, I would ask you to encourage you to, to invite Jesus to do a transforming work in, in the church, in the larger church. Pray for the church, but pray for our church that God would change us, that he would mold us and shape us, that we would actually really become like Jesus. And it wouldn't just be some words on the wall in the lobby. Ask him to use this series. Say, God, Use this series, anoint this series in us. That's what we're doing right now. When we come together to share this meal, the Lord's Supper. So take a few minutes, take some time and just think about your life and get before God. And then when you're ready, you can come to one of the tables around the room and get your elements. Take them back to your seat. We're gonna, we're gonna receive them together in just a minute. But for now, but for now, we're gonna spend just a moment in prayer with God. And then when you're ready again, you can move to the tables.